17. The speaker is Mel Burrow. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today, as we always do. Help us to open our minds and our hearts so that we might truly hear what you have to say. Give us the strength and the grace to set aside preconceived notions so that we can look at this in a fresh new way. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today and as we go forward with the rest of the lessons in this course. So we thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Any major questions before we begin on the past or what we've talked in the, about in the past? Okay. <clears throat> Today we're going to talk about uh, not only the seven trumpets, but a few other things. Uh, the seven trumpets are in many ways very similar to the seven seals. And when you get into uh, the next section, you'll be confronted, well, not the next session, but maybe the one after that, with another series of seven. And those will be the last ones that uh, show any uh, major catastrophes happening to humanity or uh, the earth. Um, those are the seven bowls, you might say. Now, the trumpets. <clears throat> Please don't think of Harry James and, you know, the trumpets in that way. Uh, the word trumpets here are used to express or define the announcements that are being made. Trumpets were always, throughout the Bible, used to signify a message coming from God in one form or another. If you recall back in the book of Exodus when Moses goes up to the mountain, there's lightning and thunder and smoke and fire and clouds and trumpets. The same way if you read the story of Joshua, uh, yeah, Joshua uh, um, he was circling the uh, city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, he was to, he was instructed to march his, uh, group of people around the city of Jericho seven times. And during that time, there were a lot of trumpets and, you know, some more noise and music and lightning and so forth and so on. And the walls came tumbling down. Remember, that's not just a song that uh, really happened. I've been to the city of Jericho, and it's interesting that they're almost proud to show where the walls came tumbling down, and there are still some minor fragments of that. So the idea of trumpets is a pronouncement or a, an announcement of some message coming from God. And that's the way you should look at it. Forget about the music part of it. There was no music, obviously, in any of these. The other thing is that the first four trumpets are pretty much in line with what we've said before about things affecting the earth. 
and normal uh, events or normal catastrophes in many cases affecting the earth and I'll go through that and, and we'll see that as we we talk about it but <clears throat> does that help anybody to put it in the right context uh, does that help you to kind of understand that these are announcements and have nothing to do with music uh, okay Larry James may he rest in peace <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting here at uh, chapter 8, verse 6. And I would like you to read along with me from your own Bibles. Uh, but listen at the same time, because I will stop and uh, explain things as we go along. As I've said before, the reason I didn't give you a book like this is because if you read this one, or this one, or all the others that I had up here at one point in time, you get so confused with the weird uh, explanations or the weird wording and phraseology that is used that you lose sight of what are we really trying to get to. And that is what I'm trying to uh, help you see is that it's the message that's far more important than uh, the wording that it's delivered by. <clears throat> the seven angels who were holding the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. When the first one blew his trumpet, there came hail and fire mixed with blood, which was hurled down to the earth. A third of the land was burned up along with a third of the trees and all the grass. Now, most of these catastrophes that are described in the series of seven trumpets are really repeats of the many plagues that Moses or God brought through Moses to the Pharaoh at the time uh, of the Israelites being in Egypt. And Moses trying to convince the Pharaoh to uh, permit the Israelites to leave. And of course the Pharaoh was very stubborn and so forth. And so over a period of time, uh, God brought seven or ten plagues uh, against the Egyptian people. And many of these uh, first four uh, trumpets are repeats of that. And there, in fact, it goes all the way up to the sixth trumpet as well. So, and for any of you who may have forgotten, of course, I'm sure you all know uh, what the seven, uh, the ten plagues were. In fact, I had to write them down myself. Yeah. The first one was water turned to blood, which is, of course, part of this one right here. So, then the second one was uh, an abundance of frogs coming. The next one was gnats, then flies, then pestilence. Obviously, if you had frogs and uh, gnats and flies and blood turned to water, you're going to have pestilence, that's for sure. Uh, then you had hail, um, boils, locusts, 
and a darkness of three days. Now, those all play a part in these seven trumpets, and we'll explain that as we go along. And, of course, the last one was the most important, the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians at that time. Uh, so, again, these are repeats. They're like God saying, look, I've told you this before, and I can do it again. And I'll kind of bring that together as we uh, finish this part of the lecture today. When the second angel blew his trumpet, something like a large burning mountain was hurled into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the creatures living in the sea died. And a third of the ships were wrecked. Well, the explanation that I have found in most of these books here is that this actually was um, a rewording of an event that actually happened against the Romans, who were, of course, overpowering the uh, Jewish people at this time period. And this was the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the year 79 A.D., Vesuvius is on the edge of the, or almost on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And the lava that flowed out of this volcano at this eruption flowed down towards the sea. And that is what uh, created the city of Pompeii to be totally buried in ash uh, up to a foot thick. And it was so sudden that many of the people died almost immediately by being buried. Uh, then the lava continued on down to the sea uh, and covered the city of Herculaneum. The reason I know all of that is because I lived in the uh, shadow of Mount Vesuvius for almost four years and have been to all of these places many times. And the story goes that when the lava hit the sea, that is the Mediterranean Sea, it did kill most of the uh, fish and all the livelihood within the sea for miles around. Yeah. And, of course, the lava in itself and the minerals that are in that would have turned the sea uh, red. Okay. And so this is pretty much an indication are uh, taken from that uh, event, which really did happen. But as we all know, volcanoes have happened many times. The most recent, of course, in our country is Mount St. Helens uh, that did very much the same as this. It blew out pretty much the side of the mountain and created all kinds uh, of problems. <clears throat> When the third angel blew his trumpet, a large star burning like a torch fell from the sky. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The sea, uh, the star was called Wormwood. Now, first of all, what would be the star? The star would probably be a meteor that uh, somehow uh, came very close to the earth and perhaps even parts of it fell into the see at the time. 
the star was called Wormwood. Anybody know what Wormwood is? Uh, Wormwood is a sort of a common name for the uh, weed called Absinius. And uh, years ago, people used to try to make a liqueur out of that weed, but it was so bitter uh, and thought to be somewhat poisonous that the American government forbid people to uh, use it or make it. All right. Uh, that is not the case any longer, but people have found other kinds of liqueurs that were much easier uh, to swallow and more a little more tasteful. But wormwood is um, more of a common name for uh, the weed absinia. Uh, and the liqueur was called uh, absinthe. Absinthe, or something of that way of pronunciation. Yeah. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the surf, a third of the moon, I'm sorry, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them became dark. The day lost its light for a third of the time, as did the night, and that is one of the plagues uh, that is the ninth plague that was uh, brought about through Moses at the time of the Israelites in Egypt. All right, so it is repeating, and it is like I said, it is like God saying, "I've told you all of this before, but you haven't listened." The fifth trumpet. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star falling from the sky to the earth. And it was given the key for the passage uh, to the abyss. It opened the passage to the abyss. And smoke came out in the passage like smoke from a huge furnace. The sun and the air were darkened. The sun and the air were darkened. That doesn't quite sound right, but that's what it says here. The sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the passage. All right, now, this is implying here that, remember, the first four trumpets, the first four seals, and you'll see this in the first four bowls, uh, really have to do with natural disasters that have or could happen to the earth. When we get into the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet, they generally deal with something having to do with humanity, uh, angels, and heaven itself, or a message from heaven itself. Okay, And here we have something that is having to do with humanity, and that is God releasing... This, uh, Satan from under his control to affect the earth. Well, that actually happened way back at the time of Adam and Eve. Um, but it is repeated here because, in a way, the whole idea of this book is to say that it could happen again. Okay. The 
The sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the passage. Locusts came out of the smoke uh, onto the land, and they were given the same power as scorpions of the earth. Now, uh, locusts and scorpions are also part of the uh, ten plagues of Moses. All right. But they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, the people who either rejected or ignored Christ. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torment them for five months. The torment they inflicted was like that of a scorpion when it stings the person. During that time, these people will seek death, but will not find it. And they will long to die, but death will escape them. This has happened several times in the past. For example, let me read, and I'm not going, I want to read a few passages that support what is being said here. Uh, but as I've said before, most of this has been uh, written about and declared in previous parts of the Old Testament. This is from the prophet Hosea. A trumpet to your lips, you who watch over the house of the Lord. This is chapter 8 of Hosea. Since they have violated my covenant and sinned against my law, while to me they cry out, O God of Israel, we know you. And this is interesting because many of the um, psalms are psalms of pleading with God to do this, thus, and so, but they don't say what they themselves are going to do in return. If you go to Psalm 80, for example, it pleads with God to do this, thus, and so to help them out but it doesn't say a word about their own problems. And it's like many people today. The only time they talk to God is when they need something. But when everything is going okay, who needs it? Let me continue with this here. The men of Israel have thrown away what is good. The enemy shall pursue them. They made kings, but not by my authority. They established princes, but without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. I want to skip some of this because it's it's a little on the long side. The kings of Samaria shall disappear from uh, like foam upon the water. The high places of Evan shall be destroyed. The sin of Israel, uh, thorns and thistles shall overgrow their altars. They shall cry. 
they shall cry out to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall upon us. Since the day of Gilbreth, uh, you shall uh, have sinned, O Israel, and so forth and so on. Anyways, several times in uh, the Bible of other passages and other books, we have this whole idea of people sinning and totally ignoring God. And, of course, that brings destruction upon them themselves. It says, the appearance of locusts was like that of horses ready for battle. On their heads they wore what looked like crowns. Now this is again an exaggeration. It's getting into the mythological. As we go forward, you'll see much more of the mythological uh, stories that were very common at that time uh, of history. If you remember, uh, these people did not have uh, movie theaters and television and a lot of books and so forth. So they got into a lot of mythology. Uh, and the Romans went so far as to, um, especially the Roman uh, kings, the Roman Empire kings, began to uh, absorb a lot of this mythology and take it upon themselves to declare that they were gods. Uh, because that's what most of the mythology has to do with, the gods playing around with humanity. Um, that's sort of a very general uh, description of what mythology is all about, but uh, that's what it is. And the Romans carried that way beyond to the uh, stage of apostasy, that is to make themselves gods. But uh, right now we are still in more or less the, the more uh, simpler parts of mythology here. Uh, it says their teeth were like lion's teeth and their chest like uh, iron breastplates. The sound of their wings, and we're talking here about the locusts, the sound of their wings was like the sound of many horse-drawn chariots racing into battle. They had tails like scorpions with stingers, and so forth. I'm going to skip over to some of that. <clears throat> they had as their king the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Appalling. Whatever those mean, I have no idea and have not been able to find any idea. Uh, again, this is mythology. Don't take it too serious, but it's to emphasize uh, the message behind all of this. Then the sixth trumpet, uh, sixth uh, angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the gold altar before God, telling the sixth angel who held the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the banks of the great river Euphrates, so that the four angels were released and who were prepared for this hour, day, month, 
in year to kill a third of the human race. Now, if you read this carefully, it says they were prepared. It doesn't say that they will do it or did it. We know that through a lot of these major catastrophes, much of the known population uh, of the Israelites and those nations surrounding them were affected. And many died because of the lack of medication and all the things that we know today to prevent a lot of this stuff. All right. But you also have to remember that in Jewish writing, and I've said this before, but people seem to forget, in Jewish writing, they like to exaggerate. Exaggeration uh, and repetition was a way of declaring something to be important. They never had the idea of underlining something or putting it in bold print because there wasn't any such thing at the time. Uh, they wouldn't have understood it anyways. So their way of uh, emphasizing important points was to exaggerate or repeat, repeat, repeat. And that is what we have here. You understand that? Because it's important in the way you look at this. Not, and uh, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that makes it unimportant. It only emphasizes what is important by its repetition or its exaggeration. And therefore, we should try to understand what the message is behind all of that. It's, it's, it's a treading on dangerous ground, you might say, if you think that because uh, there is so much exaggeration that just couldn't possibly, like later on we'll see where they're talking about two million uh, men on horseback come to invade. Uh, well, that's totally impossible for that period of time. I don't think we had two million men in the D-Day uh, invasion of Europe uh, in 1944. Well, but if you just think about the logistics and all of the things that are necessary to support an army, they wouldn't be able to support an army at this particular, this particular time uh, of two million men. But, again, don't dismiss something because there's, it's been exaggerated. Okay. The idea of, of the angels holding back, let's see, it says, release for angels who are bound at the banks of uh, the Euphrates. Now, the Euphrates River, as you all know, is uh, one of the boundaries or the main rivers uh, in Iran. In, 19, in uh, the year 62 AD, the Parthians, these are uh, a tribe, a very large tribe of, of people in the northeast of 
Israel, who attacked the Romans, and of course this was part of the Roman Empire, and they did a great deal of damage. They did not conquer Rome, but they tried and they nearly came uh, to success. And this is sort of referring to that because they came from the area of the Euphrates River. All right. Says, now in my vision, this is how I saw the horses and their riders. They wore red, blue, yellow, and yellow breastplates, and the horses' heads were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur, and by these three, by these three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths, a third of the human race was killed. <coughs> there is nothing in recorded history of any country where a third of the human race was killed. Again, this is an exaggeration. The rest of the human race who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, to give up the worship of demons and idols made from gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. <coughs> Excuse me. Nor did they repent of their murders, uh, their magic potions, their unchastity, or their robberies. It's interesting that this would be in here because let me read something that is in a book that is entirely unrelated to the book of Revelation and I'm, I just was reading the other day. This has to do more or less with um, environmental protection of the land. But listen to some of the words here. <clears throat> says, unless we change our attitudes towards the good earth of this planet, I doubt that life will last a great deal longer. Look how short a time it took to destroy Lake Erie, and Lake Erie for many, many years has been greatly polluted. And there is absolutely no evidence that the human race is learning the dire need for restoration if you read history, you see that this has happened many times before on a smaller scale. So this book, which has nothing to do with Revelation, is speaking about the care of the environment, but it's also talking about how mankind fails to look at the obvious. And even though they have been warned they have experienced the problems of pollution in this particular case here. They seem to go ho-hum and ignore it. And that is exactly the message that the book of Revelation is trying to get across to all of us. You cannot ignore the teachings of Christ. You cannot ignore... Uh, the 
need for the relation, a relationship with Christ. Because it is through Christ only, through Christ only, in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Yeah, well, see, that's right in line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to chapter 10. The angel with the small scroll. Then I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a halo around his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. In his hand he held a small scroll that had been opened. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And then he cried out in a loud voice as the lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices also. When the seven thunders had spoken, I was about to write down, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have spoken, but do not write it down. I want to go on and then I'll come back and explain a little bit. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. There shall be no more delay at the time when you hear the seventh angel blow his trumpet, the mysterious plan of God, that is the plan of salvation, shall be fulfilled as he promised to his servants, the prophets. Now let's go back. The angel in itself is Christ. Even though he's called angel here, there is no one else that could... uh, assume such a description or have such a description. As it is said here, his face was like the sun and his feet were like pillars of fire. In his hand he held a small scroll. Now what is this small scroll? It is, there's two different uh, explanations for this. One explanation is that it is our part of God's plan of salvation because salvation will not be completed until we complete our particular plan. And if we do not complete our particular portion of that plan, we will lose out and we will lose eternal life. Um, The other explanation is that, and it goes along with the first one, it goes along with the fact that God's plan of salvation up to the time of the life of Christ was not fully completed because it required the death of Christ on the cross as the uh, total divine sacrificial offering for the salvation of all mankind. And so there is sort of an uh, incomplete portion um, of that uh, plan. Now, 
I'm not overly thrilled with the description of the second part because uh, somehow or other it just leaves the door open. Uh, but that's what I get out of all of these books up here. <clears throat> then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go and take this scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went up to the angel and told him to get me the scroll. Excuse me. He said, he said to me, take and swallow it. It will turn your stomach sour. But in your mouth, it will taste as sweet as honey. I took the small scroll from my from the angel's hand and swallowed it. And in my mouth, it was like sweet honey. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Now, this is a repeat of the very same thing that happened to uh, the prophet Ezekiel. So if you, if you read Ezekiel or our reading of, which I certainly hope you will, um, you will see that this happened to Ezekiel uh, just as well. And really it refers to his uh, portion of God's plan. And that is what why I feel that that is the better explanation of the small scroll. It is our plan and it is a small portion of the overall plan of salvation that each one of us shares. <clears throat> then someone said to me, you must prophesy against uh, again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Well, that's the same as saying that each of us has the objective or the requirement to um, promote God's plan of salvation to all people. In other words, we have to be a light to the other nations. Now, in this case, we don't have to be something that is, you know, part of the United Nations. It means that we have to be a light to those people around us with whom we come in normal contact. Okay. We cannot keep our faith uh, a secret or in private, as many people do. You know, I've heard many people say, well, my faith is my personal business, and I don't want to discuss it with anyone else. And that's just the opposite of what God wants of us. He wants us to go out and share it with as many people as possible. Now, that doesn't mean we have to go out and beat people over the head. It just means that when we have a normal opportunity to share our faith, we are asked to do so. And we are required to do so. <clears throat> Let us move on. Chapter 11. And then I was giving... Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar 
the, the court, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the count, and count those who are worshiping in it, but exclude the outer court of the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been handed over to the Gentiles, who will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, measuring of the temple is something that also is a repeat from the book of Ezekiel, where he was asked to measure the temple in preparation for repairing Solomon's temple when the Israelites were returned from Babylon. This is in Ezekiel, all right? Here, it means that each of us has a need and a purpose or the purpose of helping restore and repairing and furthering the plan of God uh, through being a light to the nations. It's interesting that he also writes in here, for it has been handed over to the, that is the outer court, has been handed over to the Gentiles who will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. Three and a half years is a term that is used frequently in the book of Daniel. All right? But three and a half years happens to be half of seven years. Again, half of the time. Now, it's interesting also that it is coincidentally, if you think about it, when the Romans got fed up with the Jewish people persecuting the Christians in Israel, Remember, they didn't care about religion. Everybody was entitled to their own religion. But they just didn't want this inter, you know, almost a civil war going on in Israel. So they came in to try to squash that in the middle of the year 66 AD. June, I believe. And it created a major war between Israel and Rome. Remember, Rome had been in uh, the conqueror of the Greek Empire, and that included Israel. And now they were over the conquerors of Israel from the year, I believe it was 66, no, 63 B.C., uh, so they started this war to squash what was going on between the Jews and the Christians, and it became a major war and lasted to December of the year 70 AD when Jerusalem, along with the temple, was totally destroyed. Now, if you look at that, that's 42 months also. Which means that this book was probably written, the book of Revelation was probably written 
after the year 70 AD. And it was put in there more or less as an indication of its own date. Now, there's no way to prove or disprove that, but that is the theory. That this 42 months is in reference not only to the book of Daniel, but it also refers to the time period of the uh, Roman war against Israel. <clears throat> I will commission my two witnesses to prophesy for those 1260 days, the same as this, okay? These are the two... Uh, let's see, I will, I will prophesy... I will commission my two witnesses to prophesy for those 1260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth. And this is going on and on with, again, some mythological descriptions. They have the power to close up the sky so that no rain can fall during the time of their prophesying. All right. Who are the two witnesses? Anyone? Yes. Moses and Elijah. All right. Those were the same two witnesses that were in the scene of the transfiguration of Christ. Remember if you recall that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain and he was transfigured all right, in a cloud and the Father's voice was heard saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Right? And then Moses and Elijah appeared, Moses representing the old Jewish law, Elijah representing all of the prophets. If you read first King, the first book of Kings, uh, chapter 17, I believe it is, uh, Elijah did the same thing. He closed up the sky for three and a half years which caused a famine uh, from the drought. All right. So this is a repeat of something that happened under the time of, of Elijah. So you have another repeat of something that has happened in the past. Again, it's emphasizing God's message of, I told you this before, and you have it listened. Uh, I, I'm not sure of that, uh, of the exact chapter. It's in that area, yeah. Said <clears throat> Elijah and who? No, no. That, that's, that can't be because Enoch is way, way before that time period. 
Uh, I, in fact, I'll read right out of this explanation here. The witnesses to God <coughs> might be a, an antitype to such false advisors. Other interpreters uh, suggest that the two represent <coughs> uh, the two eschatological prophets, Moses and Elijah. The signs that they perform recall Moses um, sending the plagues on Egypt and Elijah's closing up the heavens in 1 Kings 17. Now, I, I, there's so little known about Enoch that I would not accept that uh, explanation there. Yeah. It says, when they finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, that is Satan, will rage war against them and conquer them and kill them. Their corpses will lie in the main street of the great city which has the symbolic name Sodom and Egypt, or names, I should say, Sodom and Egypt, where indeed their Lord was crucified. Those who have, every, those from every tribe, uh, tongue, and nation will gaze on their corpses for three and a half days, and they will not allow their corpses to be buried. In Jewish culture of this time period to leave a body unburied beyond the first day was a great disgrace and if anyone um, did that those who did it or involved in it were in great disgrace and that is why even to this day <coughs> Jewish people are buried within 24 hours of their death. They are not embalmed. They are not cremated, that is, Orthodox Jews, and they have to be buried within 24 hours of death. That is a cultural thing. It has nothing to do with uh, laws. Did they not believe in embalming? No, they did not. Yeah. Now, we know that the Egyptians were uh, embalmed, and embalming was known at that time, but the Jewish people, even today, do not embalm uh, their dead. They don't have to. What's that? Yes. Yes. How does that work with the Sabbath? If it kind of was a close time proximity? Well, um, that's an interesting point. I really don't know, Mike. Uh, Mike just asked a question. What happens if the deceased expires uh, close to the day of the Sabbath? You know, would they be able to uh, bury the person on the Sabbath? Uh, frankly, I just don't know. I never thought about that. Yes. Yeah. Well, frankly, I don't know because I've never been confronted with that question, which is unusual. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. I sort of lost my place there. Uh, oh, yeah. All right. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and be glad and exchange gifts because these two prophets tormented the inhabitants of the earth. All right. See, they're looking at the problem rather than the cause or why this happened and what the two witnesses are saying. And this is true. <clears throat> this is kind of human nature. When people are confronted with a lot of problems or disasters, instead of saying, God, what are you trying to tell me through this? They just kind of, you know, curse God or blame him or ignore him when they should be doing just the opposite. Going to him and listening. That is something that every one of us has to do more of. Listen to the voice of God speaking to us in prayer. <clears throat> but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. This is the two witnesses, uh, Moses and Elijah. And when they stood on their feet, great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. So they went up, that is the two witnesses, went up to heaven in a cloud as their enemies looked on. And at that moment, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell in ruins. Well, these are things that actually happened in various time periods, but not all like this. Nevertheless, Remember, Elijah was carried up in a fiery chariot and did not die. From that, uh, the legend, not history, not law, but legend developed that Elijah would have to return. In fact, uh, Jesus even mentions this in one of the Gospels and says that Elijah did return in the person of John the Baptist. All right. But in the story, which is in the uh, first book of Kings, Elijah was carried up in a whirlwind into heaven, uh, never to be seen again. Uh, but the legend developed that he would have to return in order to die, in order to go into the abode of Abraham, according to the Jewish way of speaking. Well, like I said, Jesus said Elijah did return in the person of John the Baptist, but unfortunately John the Baptist was beheaded, as we all know. Um, I lost my place again. Um, Yeah, at that moment there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell in ruins. Several thousand people were killed during the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed 
but the third is yet to come. <clears throat> and then the seventh woe, or the seventh trumpet. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of God now belongs to our Lord and his anointed, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God prostrated themselves and worshipped God and said, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who are and who were. Now that's bad grammar, isn't it? Any reason for that? All right. In Jewish culture, in Jewish writings of the Old Testament, God is generally referred to in the plural as a way of saying he is the God of all things. Now, this, of course, is referring to a later time after Christ. And if it is after the year 70 A.D., the whole idea of the Trinity has been developed by this time. Okay. And so in this particular passage, which is New Testament, it refers now here to God in the plural, but meaning the Trinity. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'll just repeat that part again. We give thanks to you, O Lord, our God Almighty, who are and who were. You have assumed your great power and have established your reign. The nations rage, but your wrath has come, and the time for the dead to be judged, and to recompense your servants, the prophets, and the holy ones who fear your name, and small and the great alike and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Uh, this happens to be uh, one of the prayers out of this book that is in the Liturgy of the Hours and is used at least once uh, in the four-week cycle. Also, there are three prayers out of the book of Daniel that is also used in the Liturgy of the hours um, program. Okay. Now, what this is referring to here is the transition of this whole book from earthly disasters to the heavenly uh, worship of God. And as we go forward, you'll see that the worship of God is analogous to our Mass, or I should say the other way around, that our Mass is in preparation for the worship that goes on constantly in heaven. Now, don't think that when you get to heaven, that's all you're going to do is be on your knees worshiping God. Uh, we don't know that. But when we talk about heaven, or when there's any explanation about heaven, we have to use earthly terms in order to understand. 
and therefore we do the best we can. And that's the way this book is, is explaining it. And as we go forward, uh, you'll see much more of that kind of talk. For example, if you get to the end of chapter 11, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. Well, we know that the Ark of the Covenant was destroyed in the Babylonian uh, conquest of Israel back in the 6th century, never to be seen again. But the Ark of the Covenant is often used about uh, or as a reference to the Mother of God. Now, when you get into chapter 12, don't just automatically assume that the woman with the 12, it says, uh, a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And this is actually next week's lesson. Uh, but I want to give you a little heads up here. Don't just automatically assume that that is Mary. In one sense, in one explanation, it is. But there is another explanation that is more in line with this book and the message of this book. And that's what I'd like you to try to figure out on your own, and then we'll compare. Any other, any questions? Yes, Jim? Yeah, it, wouldn't Trina have all the kind of new speech and platelets if they kind of go along with the idea of the numbers? Yes, the yes. Incomplete. That's right. If you, th if you think about it, <clears throat> Judaism in itself was part of God's plan of salvation. This is kind of important, so listen up. The question that Jim has made, doesn't the three and a half years or the 42 months signify something that is incomplete? And that's right. Part of it is saying that Judaism was only sort of half of God's plan of salvation. God knowing in advance that mankind was going to sin and God being divine cannot live with simple mankind. That is one of the laws of divinity that he cannot live with somebody who is sinful. And therefore there has to be a way of rectifying the breach that was made by not only Adam and Eve's sin, but the sin of all mankind <clears throat> before, during, and after Christ. But at the, that time period, halfway through, Judaism did not complete the covenant that was made between God and the Jewish people. They did not go out and share the message that God was trying to give all mankind uh, with the other nations. And therefore, that had to be completed through Christianity. And we, as part of Christianity, 
have an obligation to share our faith with others. So that before the end of the world can come, everybody has to have had the opportunity to understand who Jesus is and why he came to earth in the first place and what his teachings are. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, Judaism and Christianity together are God's plan of salvation. But we have to fulfill it. Faith without action is empty. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews says that several times. Faith without action is empty. Now, when I say action, I don't mean just going out and doing things, because doing things without their being in line with God's plan for us is also wrong. You have to work through the whole idea of what does God want from you. And it might be some big thing, but in most cases it isn't. Most cases it's something small. Each one of us has a very small portion of clay. That's the meaning of the small scroll in God's plan. And the plan will get fulfilled with or without your cooperation, but if you do not fulfill your part, you cannot expect that God is going to open the pearly gates and ask you to come in at the end of your life, which is frightening. So, my recommendation is that you get into a habit, a program of daily prayer, seeking God's understanding, seeking his will for you, and trying to understand what that is, and developing a relationship with him. I can tell you all kinds of little incidents and stories uh, that have happened in my life that goes along with that, uh, but I don't want to bore you with a lot of details. Uh, and that's not necessary that you have to kind of explain uh, or bare your soul to the world. Uh, certain parts of your faith can be kept private particularly what you are doing as your contribution uh, to the God's plan of salvation. Uh, sometimes it becomes automatically known, but other times it can be very quiet. Yes, Madge? Uh, wouldn't it be the love for him and obeying? Well, yes, obviously. That would grow as part of your relationship, hopefully. You know. <coughs> Any other questions? Goodness sakes, we got a lot of time here. We got to just, you know, use that profitably. Yes, ma'am. That's right. The Jewish faith does not believe in Jesus. So, and Jesus is the way to heaven. So, all 
that's that's a good question. <clears throat> yes, the question was, how do the Jewish people get to heaven if they don't believe in Christ? And I'm saying, you know, Jesus is telling us that he is the way, and unless they open their minds and hearts, they cannot expect to enter heaven. Now, I feel in some ways that there are exceptions to that rule, but we cannot take advantage of those exceptions because we don't know what they are. Let me give you an example. In the first letter of John, John 1, chapter 4, it talks about God is love. And if an individual lives in the spirit of love, that is, in the biblical sense, taught by Christ, of love thy neighbor, and lives according to that, then God lives in him or her. And God's not going to condemn somebody if God is in that person. So there's an exception right there. So it leaves us with hope that our loved ones who lead a good life but not may not be a, you know, a, a Sunday Catholic um, or a daily Catholic, uh, they still have an opportunity. It is not a, to us to judge who goes to heaven and who it doesn't. I think we're going to be greatly surprised about who's there and who isn't there when we get there. Assuming we, get there. we assuming we get there, yes. <laughs> yes, Jennifer? No, I would go a little bit further than that. We are accountable for what we know and what we do, or don't do. Yes, yes. Uh, we are not accountable for other people. Each person is responsible and accountable for him or herself. So that is not our job, except, except if we are parents. We have an obligation to bring up our children in a Christian, Christian atmosphere or a Catholic atmosphere. There was a segment on Channel 10 television news here just a week or so ago about young children ages 7, 8, 9, 10 uh, wanting to be uh, whatever the proper word is transgendered into the opposite sex. And it seemed like the parents were all just for it, was going to go with it, and were cooperating. To me, that is a major, major wrong on the part of the parents because children at that age do not know what or how to evaluate the future of doing something like that. And besides, we are made in the image of likeness in God and we have to accept who we are and what we are and not change it simply because 
we feel better or want to do it or whatever it is. I was appalled at that uh, three or four segment uh, program. Is it, uh, I mean, anybody who has heard about the name of Jesus has an obligation to dig in and find out more about Jesus? Yes. Because he is the way? Yes. By all means. And God will generally open their hearts to want to do that. And those people who claim to be atheists or those people who claim that they don't need God, you know, they're fooling themselves. And that's unfortunate because a lot of people do do that. But as they've often said, you've heard this <clears throat> particularly during the Second World War, there are no atheists in foxholes. When the chips come down uh, hard on some individual, the first thing they'll do is say, oh God, help me. You know? And uh, that's fine. That's the way it should be. But then they should carry it on from there. Any other questions? Yes, that's true. They think of Christ as a prophet, but do not accept him as God. Yeah, because in their faith, there is only one God. That's part of the shema. Their, their holiest prayer starts out, uh, I don't know, remember the exact words, starts out about our God is one, holy and divine. And they take that one as numerically correct. And of course, that's not what we mean when we say uh, we have one God. All right. We know and believe that there are three persons within our one God. Okay. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity. That's one of the biggest stumbling blocks <clears throat> between Judaism and Christianity is for them to accept that. Again, we cannot say who goes to heaven and who doesn't. All we can say is, are we abiding by what Christ himself has told us? Well, that's right. That's part of the Trinity. No. So then are Muslims in the same group as the Jewish people? I would think so. Yes, I would think so because they stem from the same beliefs. Yeah. They stem from the same beliefs. Some don't. Some don't. Yeah. Uh, but the Orthodox do. Uh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. It's the Orthodox who don't. The conservative and the reform, they think so, but there's no definition. There's nothing concrete or specific in their belief of the afterlife. <clears throat> Any other questions? Well, if they don't have belief in the afterlife, then what is the necessity of getting them buried within a 24 hour period? You got me. Because <laughs> 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 a lot of their things are based on sanitation. Yes. Yes. The question was, and in, it's a good question because if. if the Jewish people do not believe in an afterlife, and half of them do and half of them don't. Half, I'm 
saying that roughly. <clears throat> then what's the purpose of having to be buried within the 24-hour period? Well, we don't know. You know, so much of the Jewish faith is based on physical, earthly ideas and, you know, that's true. But there are exceptions and we cannot bank on those exceptions. We do not know how to define those exceptions. But as I've just pointed out, in the Gospel, I mean in the first letter of John, it says if God, if you live in the spirit of love, which is God, God's not going to condemn himself. You see? So, it leaves the door open a little bit. Yes. That is that is what they teach because that is a definition of apostasy. And apostasy is a condemning condition. Yeah. He said and asked the question that if a Catholic leaves the church or a Christian leaves the Christian church and becomes a Jew or a Muslim, that they cannot ever go to heaven under those conditions. And that is, yes, that is a teaching, because it is apostasy, it's called apostasy. And apostasy is a condemning condition. Denying Christ, yes. Yes. I think we've exhausted our time period. <laughs> Very interesting. You, you've exhausted me, that's for sure. Let's, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have given us. And we ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to hear and understand the message that you're trying to get across through the book of Revelation. So give us your blessing as we go forth in trying to develop our understanding of this. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.